2: My friends, I am Vivian McPeak, and this is Hempresent. If you have feedback or would like to suggest a guest or topic for Hempresent, email me at hempresent at gmail.com. Keep those notes coming in. Dr. Jade Stefano is a naturopathic physician and a certified psychedelic-assisted therapy provider. She completed her undergraduate training in biology at Reed College and her medical education at Bastyr University. She is currently working at the Ames Institute in Seattle, as a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy provider, a medical cannabis expert, and a naturopathic physician. Stefano has over 20 years of experience working as a medical cannabis provider and is the co-founder and medical director at Puffin Farm, a Washington State-licensed cannabis producer-processor specializing in regeneratively grown cannabis and minimally processed high terpene extracts. She is also a former board member of the Washington Sun and Craft Industry Association, the largest cannabis trade group in Washington, which advocates for a sustainable craft cannabis ecosystem. Jade has extensive experience working with regulators and cannabis businesses on cannabis policy in Washington, and was one of the first farms licensed in Washington in 2014, and she's with me today to tell us all about it. Welcome, Jade, to Cannabis Radio. Hi,
3: Vivian. Thanks for having
2: me. My pleasure. Uh, I had a recent guest on the show, David Goodman, whose book, An American Cannabis Story, recently hit the shelves. Uh, the book, in part, chronicles a year in your Washington State cannabis business, Puffin Farm. Uh, we have so much to cover in a short sure amount of time, but let's just kind of begin with you just describing your operation. What can you tell us about Puffin Farm?
3: Yeah, so um, we were we founded in 2014, and our um, goal was to grow weed that we'd want to smoke. So we um, started a sun-grown farm because that's you know part of our core belief that Plants should grow in the ground, under the sun and in nature, and they should not be um, using resources like carbon that are um, limited and that are causing a lot of environmental degradation. And so that's kind of what got us going with that. Is we really wanted to grow cannabis that we could get behind from um, a personal, environmental, and ethical perspective. And we love good weed. We always have, and so we. Um, love terpenes, and it turns out you actually get higher terpenes when you grow outdoors, contrary to um, popular opinion. Um, and so we started farming back then, and then we, we processed, and we um, we make joints and pre-rolls and things like that, and then we got into extracts, and we make a um, CO2 extract called extra virgin flower oil, which is a raw CO2 oil that's very high terpene and just tastes amazing. And so um yeah, that's what our
2: farm does. Jade 2023 will be Earth's warmest year on record with these last few months averaging close to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which is an alarming statistic. Um you, you mentioned that, you know, that you were out to, you know, have a a climate uh positive business. In your mind, how is this current legalization model in conflict with the urgency of climate change?
3: Yeah. And that's an amazing question and it's really um, pertinent given the expansion of legalization across many states. Um, It's a huge issue. So cannabis grown indoors is a highly carbon intensive crop. So um, most indoor kind of warehouses that do normal business or um, even grow lettuce, for example, use kind of pretty average amounts of energy. But cannabis is like super energy intensive. Um, to a level that you can't even comprehend so you have to have air conditioning you have to have hvac you have to have light at an intensity that is not used for any other crop in order to get the results that modern cannabis consumers demand indoor cannabis cultivation is a direct result of prohibition so back in the 70s 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s it was totally illegal to grow cannabis and so the only way to hide it was to grow it indoors and so um, when that happened, people learned how to do it really well and ended up growing really good weed indoors, um, and that was an okay model for the time when you wanted to have a little bit of weed for yourself and you grew it in your basement, and you know, the, the scale of the operations were relatively small, but that then translated into all the modern growing techniques we use today um, at an industrial scale, and the amount of carbon being used is absolutely enormous. Um, a good example there's like, um, is California. So um, there are, there's uh, Coachella Valley in Southern California is one of the larger cannabis producing valleys. It also happens to be one of the places that produce the most wind energy in the state of California. And so there's a proposed cannabis farm there. They've already started to build out and I'm not sure where they're at, but the final canopy is gonna be um, something like 54 acres of indoor cannabis. Crazy amount. And so if they actually um, get this project to completion, which um, it appears that the state is letting happen in the county, um, it will use all of the wind energy produced by the entire state of California and then some just to fire this one farm.
2: And that's when you got the Um, world's greatest grow light in the sky.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about Southern California here. Like, and this is a huge problem in California in general. I believe LA County has a ban on outdoor growing. Um, it's, and like the absurdity of this just is like, it's actually somewhat unbelievable. California is like known to have the strictest environmental laws in the country, possibly in the world. Yet, um, legalization, which happened there just about three, four years ago, um, did not take into account any calculations for, um, carbon or environmental impact when it came to, like, creating a whole new set of regulations um, for cannabis. And they had this, like, really golden opportunity to do it right. We're in the middle of a carbon crisis. California is the leader in this area. And they turned a blind eye to it. Um, and I don't and I'm, I don't really know why. I think it's some kind of combination of, you know, bureaucracy gone bad, special interest lobbying, and um, just – denial. Um, and also, I think about some of the regulators didn't actually know how carbon intense cannabis was, and nobody bothered to tell them. Um, so it's really interesting. That being said, there's a researcher, Dr. Evan Mills, who, if you can get him on the show sometime, I would highly recommend it. And he's out of Berkeley, and um, he has done all kinds of carbon calculations and research on indoor cannabis production versus outdoor, as well as like water and all these different factors on the environmental impact. And so he has a pretty good um, collection of publications and information on this issue that shows exactly how much energy is being used and kind of the whole absurdity of the situation. Um,
2: Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we could do a whole episode on any of these topics, but let's just move on to the next one real quick. We only have about two minutes till the first break. You have had direct experience with the current state legalization paradigm, and uh, I want to list a couple components in this interview of uh, the model that we have, and get your take on them. Starting with the cost of doing business, set against the need to build a brand while making a profit in Washington's cannabis industry with the licensing and regulation, uh, what do you have to say about that? The cost of doing business.
3: Yeah, so it's it's really crazy, and it's um, the funny thing is, so you can have a small business that's doing, let's say, five hundred a year, two hundred and fifty a year even hundred thousand dollars a year, like a normal business, like someone could run a small business and get a profit margin off of those type of numbers. Um, But in Washington, the cost of running a business bringing in $250,000 a year and one that may be running like, you know, 5 million a year, a lot of those costs are fixed and are like the same, no matter how big or small your business is. So the licensing fees are the same. Um, The insurance really doesn't go up that much after you, um, you know, get to a certain level. It doesn't go down if you are really small. Um, so there's a lot of expenses that are fixed, no matter how big or small you are. And so like really the only way to be able to operate effectively is to have a really big business because it's just the costs are so high that a small to medium-sized business cannot um, shoulder which wipes out, and- Which wipes often. out all
2: the legacy, all the legacy operations right there.
3: That's exactly right. So um, the small operators, the small mid size businesses have been going out of business left and right, really from day one. And but has been kind of an escalating problem. And um, every year, you know, more and more people are dropping off. And um, it, it's really sad. And with that, you know, the um, kind of selection of products shrinks. Um, and we see more and more um, products coming out of large producer processors, maybe with a lot of different brands. So it looks like, There's all these different options, but really it's one person making like 50 different things and just having different lines, brands, et cetera. But those small, small businesses that are craft and really care um, and put love into the production and making of those products, they are um, all hurting right now.
2: Jade, um, that's not acceptable. Um, Hold that thought. We're going to go to a quick break, come back, and we'll continue on this. One second.
1: Time to roll out for the people that let us present. Hang loose
2: And we're back on here, to present with Jade Stefano from Puffin Farm. Jade, we were talking about the the cost of doing business, and along those lines, if alcohol could only be sold within state lines and was taxed every step of the way, uh, the alcohol industry would be a shell of what it is today. What are your thoughts on the disparate treatment of cannabis versus alcohol in terms of the legal industry, and and how does that you know dial into the cost of doing business? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Well, first I want to start by saying, um from like a societal harm perspective, the difference between alcohol and cannabis are like not apples to apples. Um, alcohol causes like, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of deaths a year in car accidents um, and just, you know, loss of and, and millions globally,
2: right? Millions of deaths globally. Millions.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and can't, you know, health problems that are just tackling our system and it just goes on and on and on. And, it is very rare that there is a fatal car accident associated with cannabis. I mean, I'm not saying it never happened, but highly highly unusual. You could probably count the amount on your hands um, that happened in a year in this country. but um, you know, but meanwhile, cannabis is treated like a toxic substance. It's put behind um, the security systems that we have to have to produce cannabis, and this goes back to the cost um, is enormous. You have to have cameras in every room that record 24 hours a day, they can't be on motion sensors. They have to be constant recording, you know, if even when people aren't there, you have to have like crazy fences. You have to have, um, you know, it goes on and on and on. Whereas alcohol, my child can go to a restaurant and I can be served alcohol and they can drink it next to them. Whereas with cannabis, it's, um, you know, a whole different ball game. It's really treated um, still as a highly controlled substance. And, as a dangerous substance, and it's just really um, and the same organization, the liquor, Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board, regulates cannabis as regulates liquor. Yet, um, liquor is um, you know treated at a much lower level of concern than cannabis. Um, so it's it's really not not fair. It's not a harm reduction model at all, um, and that's a really missing piece as far as moving forward with cannabis um policy is looking at, at it as a harm reduction tool from substances like alcohol and fentanyl and all this other, other stuff that's happening. Cannabis is so much safer. Yet it's yeah, my, treated my, my grandfather so would dangerously.
2: Say my grandfather would say that it's ass backwards, right? They treat cannabis like it's oxycontin, right? Um yeah. when nobody's ever died from cannabis and we have a hundred thousand people dying every year from Oxycontin. It's it's madness.
3: Yeah. It's, it's absolute insanity, and and that sort of that just you know, and that's also what adds to the cost of um, you know having a business is because it's treated at such a high level of like danger that you have to have all these like safeties in place that are really useless. It's just, I mean, so much of the stuff that we're forced to do um, to maintain a Canada business is literally like a joke. It's like we're spending all this money to do stuff that nobody's ever going to check. To make sure that nobody that smuggles.
2: Yeah. Like nobody smuggles yeah. a bud out of your operation. Like that would be a problem.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, Oh, we're giving like, like an eighth of weed to the employees. Oh my God. Like that's a fucking disaster. Like that is like, you know, <laughs> we need to, we're going to, you know, lose our license and this and that. Whereas like, I mean, it really, we have, there's so much more important things to worry about and to put our resources to. And just all of this, um, this infrastructure created to regulate cannabis that serves no purpose it's expensive, and, and frankly, it's, it's actually terrorizing to a lot of the people that work in the industry. I, mean, I know a lot of people with PTSD, a lot of people who came out of the kind of earlier drug wars and then came into this with, like, um, the law enforcement model still in place, and um, the Liquor and Cannabis Board would show up with guns and with meth guns, on. Right. and it, Yeah, and this was, like, how it started. They've kind of calmed down on that a little bit um, recently, which is a good thing, but it's still this, like... Um, really triggering um, fear that we have still not gotten away from. And we're like almost 10 years into this.
2: I had a quarter century of cannabis reform uh, advocacy under my belt when I voted against I-502 in this, in this state because I thought it was flawed and it was legalization on the prohibitionist terms, you know, yep. uh, and I don't consider it legalization. I consider it commoditization. Um, while negotiating all of these challenges within the cannabis industry, you are still competing with a functioning black market, right?
3: Yeah. And and that's correct. Um, So at the end of the day, because of, you know, back to all this crap that we have to do to even have a business, um, it makes it so expensive that the black market has really been able to lower prices um, a lot, well below what you could acquire at the store. And so it's still going and we've got, um, there's, Crime rings being run by, you know, foreigners, um, and, you know, from Russia, different places. Um, I hear that, um, you know, are growing cannabis, um, illegally and is getting onto the market. Some of it's probably going out of state. Um, but the, yeah, the black market did not go away. You still cannot grow it in your home, which is just ludicrous. Like I can't have a plant in my backyard. Um,
2: And the black market's not subject to all these regulations and taxation and all this insanity, right? So how can you compete?
3: Yeah, Yeah, no, we can't. We can't compete and we can't just grow our own medicine in our backyard. And so it's just really um, a system built for failure and for um, the very few to succeed. Like if they can make it for 15 years, you know, another 15 years, who knows? Yeah. And what
2: we're seeing is we're seeing a bubble now, right? And an oversupply of product. Is that correct?
3: Yeah. So what's happened is when 502 happened, anybody and their brother could apply for a license for, um, I believe it was like either $50 or $100 was the initial fee to like get into the kind of fray to like get a spot to get a license. And they, they made a limited window. So like you can only apply for like this was like, one month period. And so what happened was there was a huge rush of people who wanted to have a license. And so they all paid fifty dollars to get get their little spot to get a license. And then once licensing came, um, the finances were not vetted properly. So you could say that you're gonna start a tier three grow operation with five thousand dollars and the liquor board's like, sounds good, here's your license. So what happened was all these licenses came onto the market with like underfunded situations that just were, you know, destined to fail. And it was a combination of people with kind of overly optimistic business plans, people that had no plan, um, people who did have funding, the whole gamut. And then um, on top of that, they gave unlimited producer processor licenses. Um, At the same time, they gave a limited amount of retailer licenses. So those they capped, and I want to say like 1100 or Something like that twelve hundred, it was a small amount. So the whole state can only have like, you know, just over a thousand stores. And so there's an imbalance between production and retail outlets. And then the amount of production it was licensed was huge, and people just grew so much weed. Um, the price has just been steadily tanking since day one.
2: And how about the tax scheme? I mean, cannabis businesses face a tax setup unlike any other industry. Can you briefly touch on that?
3: Yeah, so the taxation is pretty insane. So I believe we're taxed at 37%. Um, That's what the end consumer pays um, going out the door. And that, so what ends up happening is that gets passed off to them and then the producer and processors get squeezed. um, And so everybody loses. Um, There's just excessive taxes. um, And that combined with... um, Kind of a miss. The uh, IRS considers cannabis not a legitimate business, so you, a lot of businesses can't write off their um, cost of goods sold. So the combination of this kind of crazy tax treatment just trickles down to the final price, and then it trickles up and makes pr- producer processors um, unable to get um, a fair price for their crop because all of the profits being eaten by this huge tax burden.
2: Uh, just so and, and and it's another disparity, right? We talked about the disparity between cannabis and alcohol, and this is another one another one of them, right?
3: Yeah, and I'm not I'm not familiar with what um liquor taxes look like, but I know I sort I do know they're not this high. It's not every um, step and, of the way yeah.
2: like that, right?
3: Yeah. And so they did change the structure. So originally it was like the producers and processors had to pay tax and then the retailers also had to pay. Now only the retailers have to pay it all. And so that took some pressure off the immediate situation for the producer processors, except they have to pay it indirectly because that that expense gets passed off to them by the retailers. And so it just ends up creating sort of a um, less than healthy dynamic between um, producer processors and retailers as well, where um, the retailers need to get a really low price because of all the taxes and the producer processors you know, are losing money often or it's very, very tight margins. And so it just, you know, makes for a not great dynamic with the retailers having a lot more power right. than the producer processors combined but with a limited uh, amount of retailers. Go ahead.
2: We have to take another break, um, but this is, yep. <laughs> this, is, this is just, you know, the critical information we need to get out there. Um, and we're going to get some other critical information and come right back with our final segment with Jade Stefano from Puffet Farm.
1: Time to roll out for the people that let us present. Hang loose. We're coming right back.
2: Back to the final segment with Jade Stefano. So, Jade, you know, this is just, thank you for sharing all of your expertise, and, you know, you've been having the hands-on experience in, in dealing with this stuff. I mean, it seems like this is an environment where it's ripe for big... Uh, corporate uh, um, carpet bagging uh, companies to come in. And it's a volume versus quality type situation, right? Where if you can grow on gigantic uh, monoculture style volume, uh, the way they grow big agro food, then you can, you can compete in this marketplace. But if you're doing an independent uh, craft operation, you probably won't be able to survive. Is is that, am I out of base, offline, off base there?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's true for the most part, and there are exceptions, um, but um, generally speaking, like, there's not a lot of room for um, craft growers to be successful, and, you know, there's a few that have gained favor who have beautiful products, and they've done really well in the market, they are certainly, like, the, the definite exception, and, um, yeah, it, it's a difficult, a difficult situation Um, because there's a lot of really beautiful products that are being lost forever. Um, Just because, you know, the market doesn't really demand it and the structure isn't set up to allow it to happen in a a sustainable way.
2: Mm -hmm. What message would you have for anyone thinking of starting a cannabis business in today's environment?
3: (laughs) Run the (laughs) other way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, You know, it's, Like, it's definitely not easy money. Um, You would need, like, to have a really um, special product, a ton of funding, and be ready to, you know, go at it for five plus years minimum. And there's no guarantees. I mean, it is.
2: And the landscape um, is changing all the time, right? Uh, Am I right? The regulations are changing. Absolutely. It's it's an ever-evolving landscape that you have to deal with. You have to be a shape Yeah, it
3: is. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a total roller coaster ride, um, and not necessarily the most pleasant one. Um, there have been good times, and there has been bad, but, you know, it's not, it's definitely not easy money. Um, it's not even, like, medium easy. It's like, there's just, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a hard business to get into, and, um, yeah, I can't really, with... Like, good faith. I recommend anybody do it at this point. Um, you know, if that's your dream, you should always pursue your dreams, but, you know, just be ready. Well,
2: you know, I've done numerous interviews and, and, you know, as you know, I work with Skunk Magazine and what I'm seeing is legacy cannabis cultivators up and down the West coast and in other places who were waiting for legalization so that they could go legit. Right. And so they could get the, the pressure off and do what they're doing without the threat of incarceration And what I'm seeing is them losing their, losing their operations left and right lately um, and unable to compete. And that is not what I think a lot of us envisioned as the term legalization. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's heartbreaking because a lot of, a lot of people like really are at the end of the day, they just want to make an honest living doing what they love and are good at. And they thought like, maybe this would work out. And I think probably a lot of them somewhere in the back of their mind knew, Like I I think there's a big, people probably had gut feelings that this wasn't a good idea, but it was the only option because like it was either go with the changes or drop out. And so a lot of people decided to, um, you know, risk it. And for most, I think it's probably not paying off. Um, It's a really hard situation. People have lost their homes, their retirements, Um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. It requires a um, tremendous
2: amount of investment to just to start.
3: It does. And a lot of that is back to these like crazy regulations and, um, Washington's bad. California is even worse. I mean, California is a bloodbath, um, from what I hear. And the regulations are County to County. So it gets even like more insane. I mean, we're fortunate in Washington not to have that. Um, and so, um, it's nuts. And, um, yeah. I just, I I don't know where this is going to end up. I'm glad people can get weed on the legal market. I mean, there are still, you know, less people are getting arrested. It's still a big problem, but it's less of a problem than it was. So there's there's some positives that have come out of all this. Um, But it's been, you know, a really um, difficult situation for many. And, yeah, I don't know. I just wish they would have just legalized weed and you could just grow it in your house. And that was the extent of it
2: think like it probably
3: would have been, yeah.
2: Well, our, our time is up. I want to say that um, uh, there's in, in uh, David Goodman's new book, uh, American cannabis, an American cannabis story. There's some beautiful pictures of your operation and, and story. And I so much appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your expertise and your frustrations with us. Uh, Cause this is such an important issue that we all really care about.
3: Thanks for having me anytime. My,
2: my pleasure. Um, And that concludes this installment of Hempers on a Cannabis reader. When it comes to prohibition, you got the right not to remain silent. Activism cries a voice to find your voice. Speak up for justice because resistance is fertile. The Hempers on intro music is Seven Mile Beach by Joanne Rand, and the outro music is Take Back the Plant by Stickerbush. Stay strong, folks. See you next time.